Amen. Thank you so much for that, Todd. Really appreciate it for the time of worship as well. Well, listen, my name is Rob Willie. If you are visiting with us for the first time, I'm the senior pastor here at Harvest, and I just want to add my welcome to those that you have hopefully already received. I'm glad that you've chosen to worship with us today, and I trust that you've not only already been encouraged, but that uh, you'll also be encouraged in the time that we open up the Word here in a few minutes, and uh, challenged as well to live the life to which God has called each and every one of us in Christ. Before I get going, I do want to say thank you to uh, Bob Brigham. Uh, last week I was on vacation, and uh, well, the week before last and last weekend, I was on vacation, and Bob Brigham, our executive pastor, preached. And just another example of how God has blessed our church with men who are capable of bringing the Word of God and putting a meal on the table. Amen to that, for those of you who are here? Yeah. And I'm so thankful for how God orchestrated that message. Bob and I didn't know, and we didn't like put all the pieces together that I was going to preach and talk to you about the 10 initiatives the week before, and then for Bob to stand up and say, hey, listen, there's going to be spiritual warfare that's associated with living a life in Christ, especially when you're stepping out and doing more and more things for the Lord and taking back what Satan has, you know, claimed for himself. And so I was just really thrilled with it. If you didn't get a chance to listen to that, I would just encourage you to do so. But uh, so thankful to Bob for his diligence in preaching the word that way. All right. You ready to get at it? Okay, I'll take that as a convincing yes. Why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6. If you need a Bible, just get the attention of one of the ushers. They'll be happy to put one into your hands. It's two passages this morning, a little bit different than what we've done in the past. Normally just focusing in on one passage, but today I want you to turn to two different passages and keep your finger there throughout our entire time together because I'm going to have you flipping back and forth. The first passage is 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 7, in our ongoing issues series as we're working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And then the second passage is found in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 18. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 18. And so in those Bibles that are being handed out, you'll find 1 Corinthians 6 on page 954. Well, you'll find Matthew 18 on page 823, if that helps you get there just a little quicker. <clears throat> and while you're getting there, I want to look at both of these passages, one from Jesus, of course, in Matthew, and the other from Paul here in 1 Corinthians. I want to look at both of these passages because together, together, they give us a clear picture on how to settle a dispute with another believer. That's it. That's the issue. They give us a clear picture on how to settle a dispute with another believer. And I'm not talking about, you know, ticky-tack disputes like, you know, the backseat vacation scenario of she hit me, yeah, but she looked at me and all that sort of stuff. And I don't know if that characterizes your summer vacation travels. I know it used to in some of ours in days past. But uh, I'm not talking about that kind of dispute. I'm talking about disputes, as is Paul, of a serious nature. Uh, disputes that involve wrongdoing, maybe even legal wrongdoing, or especially that. I'm talking about disputes involving deception of one believer to another believer, or disputes of a malicious intent, whether it's physical or otherwise. Disputes of a serious nature between two or more brothers or sisters in Christ, believers. Paul's not talking about, and neither am I, a dispute between a believer and an unbeliever. Different story. 
Not talking about disputes between an unbeliever and an unbeliever. Different story. He's talking here about disputes between two believers, especially two believers in the same church, as was the case in 1 Corinthians and is the case here. Serious issues that require serious attention. So why don't you follow along with me, 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 1. Just to get an overview, I want to read both passages. Paul says, When one of you has a grievance against another, that grievance there, dispute, grievance of a serious nature, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And the unrighteous there, note, is a forensic term. In other words, he's talking about those who are not right before God. Not necessarily talking about those who are in all kinds of sin and debauchery, although they may be. But mostly he's talking about, in comparison and contrasting, the unrighteous, those who are not right with God, with the righteous, the saved, the saints, who are right with God. And he says, when you have a grievance against another, does he dare go to, a, go to law, go to court, before the unrighteous instead of the saints, the unsaved instead of the saved? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Now, turn over to Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. Keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 6. Jesus is speaking here. Matthew records it. And it says, If your brother sins against you, and that is, if your brother in Christ, your sister in Christ, if your brother sins against you, Jesus says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. All right, well, we're going to take all those verses and get to them in their appropriate time. But put those two passages together. The first from Jesus, the general guidelines as to how to deal with a dispute with someone and the other, from Paul, a specific application of those general guidelines. Put those two together, and you get a step-by-step -step process for how to settle a dispute with another believer. The first of which is, if you can, let it go and suffer the wrong. That's step one to settling a dispute with another believer, another brother in Christ. Legal issue issue of right or wrong, whatever it is, especially those of a serious nature, the first and preferable course of action is to let it go and suffer the wrong. Yes, suffer the wrong. 
That's where Paul ends his argument in verse 7, and it's the place that we should begin our settlement. Look at it there. Chapter 6, 1 Corinthians, verse 7. He says, To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Why not rather be cheated? Why not rather be swindled? Why not rather be deceived? Why not rather be taken advantage of? That's what that means. You see, after going through his whole argument in the first six verses, urging them to keep the matter in the church, he basically sets it all aside and says, why do anything at all? Why take any course of action, grievous dispute or not? Why not let it go and take your lump? That's the first and preferable step in settling a dispute with another believer. If you can, let it go and suffer the wrong. Well, I understand and I realize fully, even as the words come out of my mouth, that that's not easy. Not easy at all. But it is simple. And it does come straight from the heart of God through the pen of Paul for our benefit. And we're going to see that as we work through here. That it is to our benefit and to the church's benefit to let it go if you possibly can and suffer the wrong. Soak it up in the strength that God provides. Take the hit and move on trusting that God will replenish you emotionally or physically or financially or whatever it is. Suffer the wrong. Now, having said that, there are times when you shouldn't let it go. Like when the offender poses a significant risk to others. For instance, if you've been sexually abused, you need to speak up, not only for your own sake in just working it through with another brother or sister in Christ who can pray with you and help you with that long process of recovering from sexual abuse. You not only need to speak up for your own sake, but you need to speak up for the sake of others who may be at risk from the same person doing the same thing to them. If there's a significant risk to others, you shouldn't let it go. Or if you've been robbed in the parking lot, you need to tell someone. I hope you tell someone. Because it's likely that whoever did it, it's going to do it again. They got away with it the first time, they'll seek to get away with it the second time. Easy pickings, nobody told on me. You see, letting it go and suffering the wrong doesn't necessarily mean keeping silent. This is an important nuance. It doesn't necessarily mean keeping silent. It means choosing not to pursue punishment or retribution or remuneration that is payback for yourself. That's what it means. It means you're not going to go after them to get some skin from them so that you can replace your own skin or so that you can just inflict some harm on them or some hardship on them because you had hardship. We shouldn't do that. If you possibly can, let it go. But don't keep silent if there's a risk to others. Are you with me in that? Nor should you let it go if legal protection is needed. Like in cases of physical abuse or a threat to your life. 
That's why God has put a government in authority over us to wield the sword, it says, and punish the evildoer and to some extent provide protection. And you definitely shouldn't let it go if the crime was committed against a minor. Though it may not have been committed directly against you, but if you know full well there was a crime committed against a neighbor, a grievous thing, though you may not be legally obligated to speak up, certainly there's a moral obligation, especially for those of us in Christ. Like in cases of child abuse or sexual assault or something of that nature. In those cases, you shouldn't be letting it go. You shouldn't be remaining silent. Short of those exceptions, however, of a significant risk to others or legal protection or a crime committed against a minor, short of those exceptions, the first and preferable step to settling a dispute or a grievance with another believer is to let it go and suffer the wrong. To let it go and let God be your advocate. Let God do what he's going to do with respect to the person who did what they did. That's step one. If you can, let it go and suffer the wrong. If you can't, this is step two. If you can't, talk to them and work it out. That's step two. Talk to them and work it out. Work it out. And this is where Matthew 18 comes in. Why don't you flip over there in verse 15 where Jesus says again, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Listen, if you've been wronged, legally or otherwise, legally or otherwise, and you can't let it go, you've prayed about it, you've sought counsel, you've given it some time, all three of those things, by the way, you've prayed about it, you've sought counsel, and you've given it some time. If you've done those things, and you can't let it go, then your next step is to go to that person yourself, alone, and work it out. Work it out. Telling him his fault or her fault as calmly as you possibly can, speaking the truth in love, and praying, praying that he listens and repents. That's the implication here from Jesus, that they acknowledge their sin against you, repent of it, and make amends. Not so much, mind you, not so much to make you whole again or pay you back or restore your dignity or, you know, replenish your good name or whatever, but to reconcile as brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow children of God that you are having been adopted into the same family of the living God. Like, that's the goal. And that's the second part of verse 15. If he listens to you, that is, if he has a change of mind about what he's done, he repents, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. You're reconciled. You've restored your relationship that was broken by the offense. That's the goal of talking to them and working it out. A restored relationship. Once again, not to extract blood, not to somehow crush them under the weight of your thumb or bring disdain to their name, but to reconcile the relationship in the body of Christ. That's the goal. 
In fact, that perspective alone will help you as you talk to them and try to convey what they've done to you. Having said that, if you're on the receiving end of the dispute, equally as important here, if you're on the receiving end of the dispute, that is, you've committed the wrong against your brother or sister in Christ, listen, make amends now. Now. Don't pass go. Don't collect $200. Don't wait for them to come to you. And don't fake your way through worship any longer. Any longer. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, a few chapters earlier than Matthew 18, he said, if you are offering your gift at the altar, that is, if you're worshiping, you're worshiping. He's referring to a formal action that took place in those days for worship. You can think of it in terms of our time here together on the weekends. He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there, there before the altar, as in stop worshiping, stop faking it, because you can't worship with an impure heart, at least not genuinely so. He says, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Be reconciled and then worship, because anything else is fake and wrong. That's if you're on the receiving end of the grievous dispute. And not only that, he goes on in the next verse and he says, come to terms quickly, as in make amends now. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Listen, if you've been wronged and can't let it go, talk to them personally and work it out. And if you're on the receiving end of that talk, knowing full well that you're in the wrong, that you've committed the the wrong, the sin, resolve it now, lest your accuser fails to follow these steps and takes you to court and puts you in jail. That's step two from both sides of the coin. From the person who has been offended, from the person who has been wronged, if you can't let it go, talk to them. Go to them alone and seek to work it out. And if you need, this is step three, take others with you and sort it out. If you need, if step two bears no fruit, if there is no acknowledgement on their part, if there is no repentance on their part, if there is no re-restoring of your relationship, then step three, take, go to others, take others with you and sort it out. Go to them and take others with you and sort it out. If he listened, if he received what you had to say and repented, like you're done. You're done. Praise the Lord. You don't have to spin on it anymore. You don't have to suffer the anguish anymore. You're done. But as Jesus goes on to say, look at there again in Matthew 18, verse 16. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. In other words, if you need to, take one or two others with you, as in one or two other believers from within the church. That's the context here in which Jesus is speaking. Take one or two other believers from within the church so that they can help the two of you communicate and sort it out. Because newsflash here, you're probably not thinking completely objectively either. 
You're probably a little bit clouded by the wrong that's been done against you, by the hurt and the ache of your soul or your life or whatever it is. And so you need sometimes to take one or two others with you to help you communicate, to help you verbalize what's going on, two-way communication, and sort things out so that they can help you establish, as the verse says, establish the charges based on the evidence. That's what they're there for. That's why you're taking one or two brothers or sisters in Christ with you so that they can help you establish the evidence and establish the charges based on the evidence. You're not taking them with you so that you can pile it on and gang up on the guy. Man, we're going to get him now. Nor are they there for your moral support. That may be a, a nice, you know, addition, but that's not what they're there for. Those one or two others. They're there to help the two of you separate fact from fiction. To establish the charges based on the evidence, the facts. That's why they're there. And I say take other believers with you or saints as Paul refers to them in 1 Corinthians 6 because they're the ones who are the most capable of judging rightly. That's what Paul gets at in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 2 and 3. Check it out there. I'll start back in verse 1. He says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? In other words, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You're going to take your dispute before unbelievers? He goes on. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? And then he goes on one more time. He says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? The reason that we should take one or two believers with us to sort things out is because believers are the most capable of rendering a fair and balanced judgment. Yes, they are. And if the word of God didn't say it, I wouldn't be saying it because to an outsider, this, can, this could sound completely arrogant. And I in no way want it to come across that way. But this is very clearly what God is saying to us through Paul. That believers are the most capable of rendering a fair and balanced judgment. The most capable of discerning the heart and the hearts of those involved in the dispute and the motives of those involved. In other words, the church, our church, is your best chance of a just verdict. Best chance. That's not to say that the courts of our government are inept or incapable of judging correctly. Although I wonder these days in light of recent events, I say that seriously. But it is to say that when it comes to disputes between believers... The church is better. The courts are not necessarily inept, but the church, when it comes to believers, are better. It's better. Not only do we have the mind of Christ, think about it here, not only do we have the mind of Christ, that is, his perspective on things, his way of thinking on things, informed by his word, but we also have a heightened sense of discernment that comes with the filling of the Holy Spirit and a God-given ability to judge the world someday. That's Paul's point in verses 2 and 3. 
We have the mind of Christ. We saw that back in chapter 2. We have the discernment, the heightened sense of discernment from the Holy Spirit, no matter what you started with. And third, we have a God-given ability to judge the world someday. You see, the Bible teaches that when Christ returns, catch this, this is almost so far out there it's hard to believe, but the Bible teaches that when Christ returns, he will enlist us, us, to help him rule and reign. Think of it. Judging the nations according to the authority and wisdom that he grants us. He's already, that's Paul's point here, he's already gifted us for that and is continuing to prepare us for that. And having been already gifted for that and in the process of being prepared for that, we are more than capable of judging earthly cases now on this side of eternity. It's a concept This whole idea that we are going to be enlisted by Christ to help him judge and rule and reign. It's a concept first found in Daniel 7 and then repeated by Jesus in Matthew chapter 19 and then by Paul, again, right here in 1 Corinthians 6 and then by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. It's not just a one-shot deal. Even if it was a one-shot deal, that would be all we need. True? 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 doesn't take multiple times in the Word of God for things to be mentioned. If God's Word says it, that settles it, I believe it. But in this case, it's multiple times this whole concept of us judging the world. The last of which is found in the book of Revelation from the Apostle John, like in Revelation 2.26, which he is quoting uh, Jesus speaking, who says, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end To him I will give authority, there it is, authority over the nations. Authority as in the right and the power and the ability to rule and to reign and to judge. And then later on in Revelation 20 verse 4, he clarifies the timing of it all. That is, when we are going to help him rule and reign and judge. Saying that during the millennium, that is during the thousand year time span after Christ returns, but before he brings about the new heavens and the new earth and the eternal state, in that thousand-year time span in between those two things, those two events, John said in his vision of that time, then I saw thrones, plural, and seated on them were those, plural, to whom the authority to judge was committed. God has given us the privilege and responsibility and capability to rule and reign with him someday over all the earth. Beyond that, I have no idea what that looks like. The scriptures don't give us anymore. It just tells us that it's true. Rule and reign with him someday over all the earth. And not only that, Adding fuel to the fire, Paul says in verse 3 there of 1 Corinthians 6, we, that we will judge angels as well. He's like heaping it on. If you don't get it from verse 2, here's another thing. If you're not fully convinced there, how about this? We're going to judge angels too, he says, implying that we are more than capable of judging people. If we're going to judge angels and we're capable of doing that, we can judge people. We can do that. I mean, after all, angels are a little higher than us, the Bible says and more powerful than us, and more versatile than us, like they can interact in both the physical realm and the spiritual realm. We're confined to the physical, at least apart from prayer. Through prayer, we can interact through the spiritual realm. 
But the angels can interact in the spiritual realm and the physical realm as they want and as they need as God's servants. And some of them, catch this, some of them have been in the direct presence of God nonstop since their creation. And yet, and yet, we are to judge them in the future. We are to make determinations regarding the quality of their service to God, powerful and versatile as they are. How much more then, as Paul says, how much more then are we capable of judging matters pertaining to this life? Like if, we're, if we are to judge them in the next life, how much more capable are we of judging one another in this life? In matters that are trivial by comparison. In disputes that are temporal. With grievances that are going to fade as the months and certainly the years go by. How much more? Way more. That's the answer. Way more. We are way more capable of judging matters here and now because God has prepared us to judge matters there and then. We are way more capable in Christ than those who are apart from Christ. Way more. That's Paul's point. And so if you need to, when you have a dispute with another brother or sister in Christ, if you need to, take others with you, other believers in the church, capable as they are, and sort it out. And sort it out. That's step three. And if that doesn't work, step four is to tell the church and submit to their judgment. If you must, tell the church and submit to their judgment. If you can, let it go and suffer the wrong. If you can't, talk to them and work it out. If you need, take others with you and sort it out. And if you must, if you must, tell the church and submit to their judgment. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, the second part of verse 5. I'll come back to verses 4 and 5 in just a second. Middle of verse 5, Paul says, Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law, that is, goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers? Can it be? Can it be? No. No, Paul is speaking facetiously here, and the answer to his question is no, that can't be. There are plenty of people in the church who are wise enough to settle a dispute, not the least of whom are the leaders of the church, the pastors and elders and deacons. And if you must, if you must when you've been wronged, and, please do not miss that three-letter word, and you've exhausted the first three steps, if you must, Take the dispute to them. Tell it to the church. Like Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, 17, saying, if he, referring to the accused, if he refuses to listen to them, that is to the group of two or three from step three, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, which begins by making it known to the leaders. To the leaders. That doesn't mean that you are to start a, like a, a laundry list or an email thing or a, a whatever and, and tell everybody you possibly can on your own. No. Chaos. 
Completely contrary to all things in order, as God says in the Scriptures. It means you tell it to the church by first making it known to the leaders, and then, don't miss this, and then submitting to their authority and judgment as to the best course of action. You see, when you get to this step, if you get to this step, you're handing over the reins completely. You're handing over the reins, you're taking a back seat, and you're submitting yourself 100% to the judgment and decisions and determinations of the church as led by its leaders. In other words, it's not your call as the offended individual to decide that we should automatically railroad the person. In fact, you're probably the least objective person to make that call. And not only that, but we're going to need some time to get caught up on the dispute. And then we're going to allow for some more time for whatever process we put in place to hopefully bring about repentance and restoration. Time. And if and when that doesn't work, the time and the process that we put in place and so on, if we act at all, by the way, having made a determination as to whatever the dispute is and the severity of it or the veracity of it, the truth of it or lack thereof, but if and when all of that doesn't work, we'll then decide how to most effectively treat the person as an outsider, the person who committed the wrong, the grievance, who initiated the dispute. That's what Jesus means, that is, in deciding how to most effectively, effectively treat the person as an outsider. That's what he means when he says in the second part of verse 17, look at it there, if he listens, if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That is, treat him like a rebellious unbeliever who's living in sin and knows better. That's what that means. But that's not your call when you've brought it to the church at this point. Not your call. You need to submit to their judgment and their discretion. And the scope of our response, the scope of our response as a church may or may not include the whole church. A good rule of thumb for which is that the extent of the public response should be proportionate to the public nature of the offense and the role of the person involved. Let me repeat that and then I'll explain. A good rule of thumb on the scope of our response as a church when a dispute gets to step four here and is told to the leaders. A good rule of thumb is that the extent of the public response should be proportionate to the public nature of the offense and the role of the person involved, the person who committed the offense. In other words, if one of our pastors on staff or one of our elders or something should fail morally, whatever grievous way, but if one of them should fail morally and remain unrepentant about it, okay, and remain unrepentant about it, I'd have to stand up here and address it with every single one of you. Every single one of you. It's not the case if they're repentant, although they may be removed from their role, depending on what it was. But if they're unrepentant, I'd have to stand up and the scope would be all pervasive. But if, for instance, one of our children's workers steals the purse of another children's worker, we'll probably deal with it at that level. We'll probably communicate to those 
who are directly involved in that ministry or associated with that ministry in some way, shape, or form in order to effectively treat that person as a rebellious unbeliever who is living in sin because they're unrepentant about what they did. In any case, if you're involved in a dispute and you've exhausted the first three steps, tell it to the church, take it to the leaders, that's a God-ordained step, an option that he has given us. And then submit to their judgment. Let them decide the best response, and here's why. Because when it gets to that level, when it gets to the level of telling it to the church, the ramifications are huge, huge. And the responsibility is enormous on us. That's the very next verse in Matthew 18, 18, where Jesus said, whatever you bind on earth, kind of a cryptic statement here, but hopefully I can explain. He says, whatever you bind on earth, don't forget the context here. He's talking about a dispute and resolving it. Regarding the church, whatever you, the church, led by its leaders, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, whatever decisions that we make as a body regarding a rebellious unbeliever who knows better, whatever decisions we make regarding that person, they will be honored in heaven. They will be honored in heaven. Our decisions, assuming that they are spirit-filled, of course, our decisions will be honored in heaven. So if we disassociate with a person, heaven will disassociate from that person. Heaven will pull back from influencing that person. That's another aspect of turning someone over to Satan, like we saw a few weeks back in 1 Corinthians 5. And that's the kind of authority that God has given the church and the ramifications of bringing the dispute to them. Heaven is watching. Like when you enter step four, they perk up. What's the decision going to be? And so if you can, let it go from the get-go, will you? And suffer the wrong. Let God be your provision and your peace and your restorer of your soul. If you can't, talk to them and work it out. If you need, take others with you and sort it out. And only if you must, tell it to the church, starting with the leaders, and then submit to their judgment. Because according to Matthew 18, the host of heaven already does. The host of heaven already does. Like this whole thing of church is no child's play. And the whole thing of your leaders here in this church is not child's play. Like there are cosmic consequences to the decisions that we have to make sometimes. And so if you can spare us from those decisions and the risk of getting it wrong, will you do so? Will you do so for our sake? Will you do so for our church's sake? Will you do so for heaven's sake? Literally. That's step four. And then last, step five. By all means, stay out of court and avoid the loss. Stay out of court and avoid the loss. That's the point of the entire message here in 1 Corinthians 6. Stay out of court. Stay out of court, Paul's saying. 
which he develops, this whole point, he develops in verse 1 by basically saying, you'd be foolish to go to court and risk a judgment from someone who's unsaved, from someone who is not as capable of making a correct judgment. You'd be foolish. You'd be out of your mind. Why would you even dare do that? And then in verse 4, after making a case for our ability to judge, he says, So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. In other words, he appeals in these verse and a half here to our logic. Why would you ever take your disputes outside the church when everything, everything you need is right here inside the church? Why would you do that? When all of the wisdom and all of the discernment and all of the love and all of the spirit and all of the everything is right here for the best judgment call, for a just and a right decision. Like, why would you go elsewhere? And then, having appealed to our wisdom in verse 1 and our common sense, our logic in verses 4 and 5, in verse 7, look at it there again, he gives us the bottom line. The bottom line. Saying to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. It's already a defeat for you. I mean, not only would you be foolish and shameful for taking someone in our church to court, but you're a loser from the start. You're already defeated. Already defeated. You've already suffered loss in doing so, Paul is saying. Like the loss of peace. Because check me on this, there's nothing like an ongoing dispute to rob you of peace, is there? Nothing like it. In fact, disputes are the fertile soil for the roots of bitterness. They are. Avoid the loss of peace by staying out of court and avoid the loss of an untarnished testimony. These are the reasons coming full circle as to why, if you possibly can, let it go and suffer the wrong. Because if you take someone to court, if you go the wrong path in settling the dispute with another believer, you risk an, a tarnished testimony. If you take another believer to court, whether you like it or not, the world is going to think that you are no different than they are. And they're going to be like, uh, what's so great about Jesus if you guys can't even get along? That's what they're going to think. And rightly so. Rightly so. And what's so great about your church if lawsuits are the order of the day? What's so great about it? To which our answer would have to be, well, maybe not so much. Maybe not so much. And in that moment, your testimony for the name of Jesus will be tarnished. Avoid the loss. Avoid the loss of peace. Avoid the loss of a tarnished testimony. Because even if you win, you lose. Even if you win, you lose. So by all means, if at all possible, stay out of court in your disputes with one another and avoid the loss. Better, better to suffer the wrong and let it go than win the case and lose even more. Let's pray. Lord, thank you 
for the instruction of your word. And I hope, Lord, that there's not a single person in here for which these steps are applicable right now. I hope not, God. But if there is, Lord, will you use these truths from your word to inform their hearts and minds and respond rightly and in the best way possible so as to preserve our unity and preserve our testimony and preserve the own peace of their soul. Will you do that, God? And will you just hide these truths in the hearts of the rest of us so that if we ever encounter something of this nature, Lord, we'll avoid the loss of doing things wrong and we'll walk in the confidence of doing things right, having learned the lessons from those in Corinth in order to avoid their issues and live the life in our day and age, the life to which you've called us. I'm confident, God, that you'll do that. I ask it, and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship one more time.